we glorify your name. What a joy to sing together this morning. What great songs that just exalted your name, your person. The glory of you seen fully in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those, those words, those biblical truths make us sing. They warm our heart. They remind us that what we're going through on this earth is worth it. We have a Savior. There is a great end to this life, even though it may be difficult. There's a great end. And it ends with you. But while we wait, we carry the greatest message in the world. The message our friends, our neighbors, our family needs to hear, Lord. I pray that even as we look forward to what comes after this life, that that will motivate us to live for Jesus today. To be those who believe the Bible in its fullest. And strive by the strength of the Spirit to live that way. Lord, help us. We can be so hypocritical some days. We can say one thing on Sunday and forget it on Monday. Lord, help us. Help us to represent you. Help our hearts be changed more today so that we can stand for you and speak for you and live for you. That is our desire, Lord. When we are weak, Lord, we know you are strong. Strengthen us for that. And may this message do that and encourage us, Lord. Father, we have a full house today, packed full of people who want to hear your word and worship together. There's some that can't be here, Lord. They've gone through difficult things this week or they're going through treatment. Uh, Lord, we just lift them up. I particularly pray again for the Brown family, Lord. Pray for Michael Brown. Pray that you would put your loving arms around him. Pray for quick healing. Pray that you would take away lasting effects of the stroke. And we ask that you would just comfort this Brown family again, Lord. Give them mercy. I pray for those who are walking through treatment and it just wears them out at times. Lord, give them strength. Help them know that we love them, but your love is perfect. May they cling to the truth of your love and the truth of your word. Lord, I'm so grateful for our missionaries around the world, even more than ever. So inspired by watching men and women, young and old, serving you in places that for Americans would be very difficult. They're reaching into places that are unknown. They are the ends of the earth. And so we're grateful for them. We pray that you would provide for them. I pray for this church. that We would give. We would not withhold our funds. There's so much to do and so little time. We want to reach the world for Christ. We want to find what you're doing and join you, both here and abroad. And so we pray for those missionaries. Strengthen them, embolden them, give them favor. Lord, use them mightily. And Lord, as we hold that rope, may we dig our heels in in the truth of the word of God and grip that rope and hold while they go down. And Lord, may you raise those up out of this church who are willing to go into that well where you are dispensing living water. So, Lord, we pray for missions around the world. Help us be mission-minded. You are a mission-minded God. Help us to be like you. Lord, thanks for this truth today in this passage. We thank you for the promise of resurrected bodies. May this encourage and grip our souls today. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the churches I was recently in, and I showed this picture on Wednesday night. If you're not here, that that service is online. I think you can see the picture as well and hear uh, what was said about them. But one of the churches, uh, when we walked in their little kind of thatched church, and uh, it was a sweet little building, um, said above the pulpit up there, it said, what Scripture says, God says. It's their way of saying they believe in the authority and errant, all-sufficient, powerful Word of God. And they believe in God's Word. And, and when you don't have much, it's quite a statement. The Bible talks about his great love for us and how he provides for us. And, and you have to believe God's word, right, when times are difficult. I, I love that saying. I took a picture of it. And, and just to remind myself what the scripture says, God says. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we believe the Bible? 
do you believe it today, and will you believe it tomorrow? My Sunday school teacher used to say, that's a good answer at Sunday school, but how does it work on Monday school? That was always a good thought. Do you believe the Bible? Do you believe all of it? Do you believe it's inspired by God? God breathed. He put effort into it. It's a product of him. He, that truth came forth from him. Do you believe the Bible? Do you believe it all? Do you believe that it's inerrant? Do you believe it's authoritative for your life, your marriage, your parenting, your money? All the things that you have, do you believe it to be the very word of God? Well, throughout the church age, there has always arisen challenges to the word of God. People's own passions uh, that they believe the Bible doesn't take care of or, or they don't agree with it or they want to twist God's word in order to make it say what they want it to say. But that's not what the Bible says. The scripture says what God says. And the Bible reminds us that the most difficult challenges do not come from the world. They come from within. Acts chapter 20, Paul's about ready to leave to go to trial. He stops at Miletus. The elders from uh, Ephesus come down and meet him there. He warns them upon his departure, savage wolves will arise among them and devour the flock. Acts chapter 20. Our worst challenges come from within Christian circles. And they come from people who don't believe that what the scripture says, God says. They want to change it. This was the case in the first century church. This is the case in Corinth. They were struggling there. They were taught better. They were taught who Christ was by Paul. Paul had brought the teaching of the gospel to them, including the resurrection and including the resurrection of their own bodies. They had allowed this sinful culture they lived in, much like our culture today, they had allowed that culture, that Worldly wisdom, we know better thinking to evade their theology. And pretty soon, this church was teaching there's no resurrection for Christians. They were robbing hope from believers because they thought they knew better. Well, this caused Paul to make this definitive statement that we looked at mm, six weeks ago or whatever last I was here. Verse 33, do not be deceived Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, that's a great principle, right? Your grandmother said that to you, didn't she? (laughs) Your mom or dad might have said that saying. It's a good principle. Bad company corrupts good morals. But we have to be careful with that. There's a little bit of legalism that can come with that, right? Well, we just don't hang around those type of people. (laughs) Oh, careful there. The context is the bad company is false teachers here. False teachers have led the church astray. If you keep company with a false teacher, you're going to end up in trouble. And you need to recognize who you're around. That's the idea. That's the context that is laying here. And in the end, they denied the body body resurrection of believers. And Paul says, do not be in fellowship with it. Do not take company or the word is associate with these false teachers. It will corrupt your biblical moral view of God and the church. And he's warning them of that because they had accepted those things. This is a strong warning. Notice the beginning of verse 33. Do not be deceived. There's deception going on in Corinth. You're deceived what God promised. You're lying about what God has said, and I'm here to correct that. And so in verse 34, it tells us that there was a lack of sober-mindedness. The idea is self-control, a fruit of the Spirit. And that's always connected with false doctrine. And that's how it spreads. There's a lack of self-control. There's a lack of sober-mindedness. There's a lack of understanding who you are and who God is. Do you see that today within Christian circles? Well, we know what the Bible says about marriage, but we don't care because this is our view. We want to bring our view to God. We, we, we don't think he really says that, and, and that language is archaic and so forth. Right? What are they doing? They're not sober-minded. They're not humble when they come to the word of God. They're bringing their own principles to God. They're trying to change God. That's what God needs to change. It's us that need to change. 
And so we see this constantly down through the 2,000 years of this church age. So Paul finally says, notice what he says there in verse 34, stop sinning. When you go against what God says, you are sinning. It's a sin to see what the Bible says and go against it. It is a sin. It is what caused the death of Jesus Christ. Christ died for sin. And so Paul says it's a sin. You're going against it. It's a rejection of the truth of God. It's a rejection of his word. It's sin. Notice in verse 12, he dealt with this earlier. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been risen from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? We, we've taught you that there's a resurrection after death. And because Christ raised from the dead, you will rise from the dead. How is it? How, how is it possible after we taught you that from the direct inspiration, revelation from God, we've taught you that, what God says, and you said, no, nah, it doesn't It doesn't work that way. Isn't that what we're up against in today's society? And not, and not so much the society, but now in the church. Staggering to be overseas, especially third world churches, and they're going, Pastor, what's going on in the American churches? We hear they're accepting the exact opposite of what God teaches. They, I'm asking me, I'm going, not at our church. <laughs> they're going to have to drag my dead body and grip to the pulpit that that ever happens. Praise the Lord. But it is happening. Because they see, they know that what happens here eventually makes its way to the jungle. Prosperity gospel is now there. They battle that in the jungle. Because of false teaching that arised in America. And so you can see that this false teaching has arisen about death and life and what happens after we die. All of that has been robbing believers of hope. L look, if you're suffering in any way and, or you feel the aches and pains of life, if you're like, well, you are like us because once you take a breath, you start, start dying. But some may be going through treatment. Some may be going through difficult things. Life may seem shorter to you. This is a message of great hope. God has an extraordinary, miraculous body awaiting you. And just think about this. These false teachers were robbing that from the church. And so Paul's unhappy. They're sinning against God, and Paul knows it. And so he tells them, stop sinning. You're twisting the instruction about God. You're twisting what he has stored up for his blessed children that he knew before the foundations of the world. You're robbing that from them. So Paul's a little fired up when you study this. Particularly in the Greek, there's a lot of, a lot of strong, strong statements here. Now, the message of our bodily resurrection is a message of hope. We see it all through the scriptures. Romans chapter 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace which we stand. And he says this, and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. The resurrection tells us there is great hope. Our Lord gets off that cross. He's put into a cold grave. He's raised three days later and shows the victory over sin. He's an overcomer, right? He's overcome for us, makes us overcomers. That tells us that we'll overcome this life. We've been given something so much greater. Paul wrote to Timothy, starts out his first letter to him and says, Christ Jesus, who is our hope. He is our hope. Jesus knew the Jews struggled with this concept. Now, uh, John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, he says, Do not marvel at this. He's been talking about his upcoming death. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear my voice and they will come forth. I mean, that is going to be an army of bodies that God raises someday. As our Lord calls forth with his own voice, brings them out of the grave miraculously and transforming their fleshly bodies into a heavenly body. I mean, you, I think us that get a little more age on us understand this. You, you, some of your young people, are, you, you're so fit. You're so, I, I remember that. You just kind of feel invincible, but it's coming, I promise. <laughs> and the older you get, you go, oh Lord, I long for that. I long for those things. 
think the key here is what's Paul's inspired goal in these verses to help believers put their hope in God. If you're going through a difficult time, put your hope in God. He does not lie, Titus says. Paul says to Titus. He cannot lie. Put your hope in God. As we will see throughout this, he's going to give these simple and clear and practical illustrations to help you understand that what God has in store for the redeemed. He has, he has this incredibly heavenly bodies ready for us. So please hear the instruction, not only for the hope of the future, because sometimes we can just think only future, but, but for the encouragement to help you run this race, to finish well, finish well here. Do you want to do that? Finish well. No matter what your age is, do you want to finish well? And I want to encourage you through this today. A couple of points here. Number one, the foolishness of rejecting Christ and the power of the resurrection. Look at verse 35 in the beginning of 36 here. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool. (laughs) You can see he's getting after it right away. And this question is not asked out of innocence. It's asked out of rebellion in a sense. He knows they have rebelled. He said, notice he's quoting them. Some will say, how are the dead raised? It's a rebellious question because it's coming from this. This why Paul's dealing with this. This is why it's a letter of rebuke in so many ways. This is what's coming back to Paul. This is what's pretty important. Well, Paul, there's some there and going, how will the dead be raised? That's impossible. A rejection of the supernatural of God. And Paul's response is, you fools, right? You see, it helps you understand this is a question that does not have the goal of biblical knowledge, not the knowledge of what they've been taught through the gospel. They're coming with their own wisdom. And so Paul meets them in their own wisdom and says, you're a fool. You can know, it's just obvious, we've talked about this through this series, there's this clear influence of this agnostic philosophy that had captured some of the leaders within Corinth church. And the result was they thought Paul's theology on the resurrection was was absolutely impossible. They, They believed it to be impossible. But it's also clear Rejection of God's inspired word through Paul. They're rejecting God's word. They're rejecting Christ because if God raised Christ, he'll raise you. And so there's a greater rejection of just the apostle here. It's a, really, it's a rejection of, of God's word and his son. Now, the agnostics and these Greek philosophers, remember, they, they thought matter was evil. So tissue and bone, that's evil. And the sooner you can get rid of that and go on to your little spiritual sparkly place you go, the better. That's what they thought, and that's what they taught. Who would want something that was decaying? They couldn't get over the, the aspect of death. They couldn't get over the aspect of seeing somebody grow old and then seeing that dead person and realizing what happens to flesh and bone and stuff after death. They just couldn't get that out of their mind, and so they had to, they had to make that sure that I was evil. And so the truth of the resurrection was absurd. The problem wasn't just with the Greeks, though. The Jews had a real problem in many cases, with the resurrections. Well, you've already heard my funny joke of Sadducees are sad because they don't believe in the resurrection. Um, But that was very true. So that dominated a lot of that theology. But then there was another sect of Jews who, though they rejected what the Sadducees taught, they did believe in a resurrection, but they based it on the words of Job. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? They saw that the resurrection was resurrected in your flesh and there is a point where you're sealed in that decayed body and you resurrect. Here's where they would take. Job 13, 15 says, though you, he slay me, I will hope in him. That's a great statement. But then he goes on through several chapters and he gives this very descriptive understanding of death. And he finally gets to Job chapter 19, verse 26. And he says, when, even after my skin is destroyed, Yet from my flesh I shall see God. So the Jews took this and they, they began to say, well, the resurrection and this dying flesh is what you're going to end up with. And it's just a horrible view of, of the resurrection. So there's one group that's uh, uh, influencing this church, the agnostics. And then there's another Jewish group that's influencing this group. And they're trying to figure out, well, what's the truth about the resurrection? 
So both of these are false teachings, and they hit this church hard, and Paul's there to expose them. But notice verse 35. He said, some of will say, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body will they have? Well, Paul knows what they're saying. He knows what they're wrestling with. He, he knows that they, they have doubts and, they, and, and they've left a, uh, what we would call now a biblical thinking and now they're left to their own speculations and that's what happens, right? And we see this today, whether it's marriage or parenting or money or what all the things that the world's chasing right now. When you leave a biblical understanding, you're left to your own human fallen wisdom and your speculations now lead you to false truths. And he's seen that arise. And so the Corinthians have been thinking about how can a decayed body rise? And, and if matter is evil, why would we want these resurrected bodies anyway? And see, this is a problem. I don't know how many people, too, have asked me throughout my ministry and said, well, Scott, how do bodies of those blown to pieces in war or eaten by sharks or buried in the depths of the sea or burned beyond recognition, how does God do that? And, and see, if you don't, if you're not gripped by the sovereignty of God and his all-sufficiency, pretty soon your mind will lead you to different things. Well, maybe heaven is just kind of spirit, and you're just kind of there or something. And we leave that biblical understanding. We set that aside. We don't see the sovereignty of God and his power to say, let there be light. <laughs> I think he can handle my decaying body. But see, that's what happens. And it's happening in the first century. It happens today so often. See, religious people without the truth of the word of God are extremely dangerous. Let me show you. I, I got thinking about this. Look at Acts chapter 15. Excuse me, Acts chapter 26. This is Paul. He's in trial and he's before Agrippa. And I, I, I just chasing down passages on the resurrection and landed in this one. I think this is a fascinating text. Verse 20, uh, chapter 26, verse 1, catch up with me. Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. He's in court, right? Before the king. And then Paul stretched out his hands and he proceeded to make his defense. Oh, give a preacher the floor. Here's a, here he goes. In regard to all the things which I am accused of by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I'm about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all the customs and questions among the Jew Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Man, he's got their attention, doesn't he? He's got a, he's got a pulpit, doesn't he? Then he goes on to say, so then all the Jews know all my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation at, and at Jerusalem. Since they know about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And I am, and I am on trial, standing trial, for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. That's a promise of a coming kingdom, promise of resurrection, promise that he's going to take all those who have faith alone in him and bring them to himself. The promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused of the Jews. It's interesting how he turns that and brings that back to a biblical theology and pointing to the fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he drops this question, which is really interesting. He's going to let this question hang here, and then he's going to go back to his own story. He says, why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? Now, he just throws that little question out there and lets it hang. Now, notice what he does. He goes back to his own testimony. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of G Jesus of Nazareth. So I got from the Old Testament that I got to get rid of this guy. He missed the whole narrative of the Old Testament. He missed the whole understanding that everything was flowing towards Christ. Christ was the key to the kingdom. He was key to everything. He was the only way to get to the Father. He missed all that, and he said, oh, i got to get rid of this Jesus and all of his followers. He's given his own testimony here. 
verse 10, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I, and as I punished them often in the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being uh, fiercely enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. His church was scattering and he was chasing them. Verse 12, while so engaged as I was in journeying to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way, a light from heaven, now look at the terminology here, brighter than the sun, we're going to talk about the sun's glory here shortly, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when I had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus. Oh, my goodness. Everybody was doing fine till that point. He is the resurrected one. Why are you kicking against me? Why are you abusing the resurrected one? Everything comes back to them. And, of course, he's, he's in a sense, walking this courtroom through the theology of, of Israel and biblical theology all coming to that one. I fought against him, but he met me, and he revealed himself to me, and he's in the same glory, the glory of the Father, and I realized he was the resurrected Jesus. And there, Paul put his faith in him, and it changed him. And it's the resurrection. And you go back to that verse 8. He drops that little, that little ditty in there, right? Right there in the middle of that. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? He, why is that? He goes, I've now seen that resurrected Savior. Now he's my whole life. <laughs> he's everything to me. Now, as you work your way back to 1 Corinthians 15, you see that, Paul is serious about this understanding of the resurrection of the believers. So in verse 35, Paul says that you're, you're, you're asking these questions. Verse 36, you're a fool. And this is the response when you lean on your own hum, human reasoning. That, the word fool is a, a great word. I mean, it literally means one without reason. It means a senseless one. See, so you have no biblical reason. You're senseless if you reject the resurrection. And that's Paul's reply to those who are questioning it. And, and ultimately, think about this. If you question the resurrection, you're questioning the gospel. Because the gospel is the, re the resurrection is the result of the gospel. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work will be resurrected to a new life, an eternal life. It's so connected. And Paul knew that. And so he says, you're fools. You're going to empty out the gospel because you don't believe in the resurrection? So often people think they find some flaw in biblical doctrine, right? And so they start to attack it and hold on to it. The Bible says in the end, the wise become fools. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. In the end, you guys who think you're such great philosophers, you've listened to the Greeks and you've listened to the Jews and you, you think there's no resurrection. In the end, you think you're wise, but you become fools. And that's what Paul's making clear here. See, Paul knows their thinking. He knows they've rejected Christ. He knows they've rejected their resurrection. And early in verse 32, he says, if that's true, just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. You've taken all of the strength of the gospel away. Some Christians are willing just to let people die in that type of thinking. That brings us to point two. Number two, a gospel that takes death and produces beauty. A gospel that takes death and produces beauty. Well, first Paul is, is going to make this comparison. He's going to make this clear and powerful illustration in order to help people understand the difference between lies and truth. Notice what he does in verse 36 and 37. You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, 
you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. Well, notice he starts off with an illustration of a seed. This is his way to help them grasp this. Uh, the focus is not the seed. The focus is the result of the seed. What does the seed produce? That's what he's bringing their thought to. Remember, this is an agricultural world, first century, life of Christ, all of that time. Everybody had their hand in agriculture at some level, maybe some more than others, but everybody understood lambs and grain and fields and so forth. And so he brings them to a very clear illustration. He's helping them understand that the seed is put into the ground. That seed's got to die. It's got to decompose. And out of that decomposed seed, there comes a new plant. That's pretty cool. And the plant looks extremely different than the seed. That's what he's saying there. In fact, if you look at the seed, if you've ever done this, and, and you didn't know any better. And I handed you a little teeny alfalfa seed. And I just put it in your hand, and they're extremely small. And you looked at that. <laughs> Would you say, wow, that's going to make several, you know, 150-pound bales of hay. You're not going to get that. You're going to look at that and go, look like it's on top of my muffin. From that seed, and we planted alfalfa for many years, comes incredible tonnage of high-protein vegetation that creates milk in cows so you can drink milk. Uh, it's an amazing thing when you look at that. Uh, being from California and the West Coast, we've been to the Redwoods. We've stood there with Redwoods where it would take 15 people, linked arms around, and maybe make it around the trunk of this tree. And we've seen the great pines, the great sugar pines and, and yellow pines and other pines that drop these huge pine cones. They're gigantic. But when you get to the redwoods, they're smaller pine cones. And then if you dig deep down in there, you find a seed. It looks like about a half of a shriveled up peanut, often dark in color. And if I said, if you never know any better, I put that seed in your hand, you would say, is that a beer nut or what is that thing? No, a tree up to 150 feet with an incredible amount of board footage will come out of that little seed. See what Paul's doing? He says, you don't see what God's doing. He has something far more greater. So death and decay must take place in order to produce a glorious result. That's what he's saying in verse 36. In verse 37, he says, do not take the beauty, you don't, you don't take the beauty of a corn stalk, right? I don't, well, if we're going to plant corn, we don't dig a hole and, well, just throw the whole corn stalk in there. <laughs> Nothing's going to come out of that. When you plant corn, if you've done this, it's a hard, shriveled up seed that doesn't look like 4th of July at all. You put it in the ground, it dies, it decays, and grows a corn stalk. And if you've ever eaten sweet corn right in the garden, garden, just pulling that off, oh my goodness. What a transformation that took place. So Paul's using natural things, things that God has done to make sure they understand this. And, and, I, and I love it. He uses everyday life settings. God's illustrating the resurrection right in front of us. Every time you plant a garden. This week we stopped by a dear member's house and we were talking with him, catching up a little bit and uh, particularly the wife just has the ability to grow her gardens. I always, every time I go over there, I'm amazed at her gardens. And, and um, you know, she was talking about all the hard work that it takes to do it and all that bugs and fighting and all that stuff. Um, but then there was a set of just beautiful um, flowers around one of their palm trees, just absolutely gorgeous. And I said, well, look at that. We need to grow that in our yard. We don't have much flowers going yet. And, and she goes, you know where I got that? She goes, I went down a dollar tree. And bought a little packet. And I just sprinkled it around there. And that's what's there. Dollar tree. And, and these tiny little seeds. And, and there's these colors of red and yellow. And just in the most brilliant that you could not, you can't, you can't even come up with on your own. Out of this little seed. Jesus talks about this. Look at John chapter 12. Go with me there. You got to see this. Oh, brothers and sisters, if you believe the gospel and your life has been changed through Jesus Christ, he has such great stuff in store for you. He has a life that is just 
unbelievable that's coming. So, and it's, the goal is to be reminded of this so you run for him now. Jesus, just the last sermon before his death, we drop into John 12. He, he quits talking publicly after this chapter. John chapter 12, verse 23, follow along with me there. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It wasn't very glorious of him on the cross till you're saved. That was not a glorious setting. He's talking about his resurrection. That's when his glory is fully seen that he beat sin, death, and, and, and everything. And Satan, he beat it all. He's gloriously revealed of who he was. And so there's a day, there's an hour coming. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's what he was going to do. If I don't get on that cross, there will be no fruit of my work. You will die in your sins. <laughs> but the wheat's got to go in the ground, and it's got to die. And then, look at what he says in verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it. Wow. What a statement in that. You want to love your life and reject Jesus? Guess what your resurrection's going to be like? Oh, you'll get resurrected, and oh, you will have a body prepared for eternal judgment. See, you're going to lose it, and you're going to lose it big time. And Jesus is warning about that. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life, meaning, oh, I, I, I hate that I'm, what? no, no, it's not what he's talking about. Meaning, he he hates the sin struggle. He hates the, uh, the battle of this and what I caused Christ to go through. I'm not holding on to this. I'm not white-knuckling all that I have here in order to build my own life and kingdom around this. That's the idea here. Are you willing to let go of that for the cause of Christ? Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. That's the problem with the Corinthians. They want to follow their own thinking, their own wisdom, their, the way they looked at things. No, 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 you've got to follow me, what Scripture says. God says, do you believe that? Will you follow me? There's a real difference of people who like Jesus and people who will die for Jesus. Big difference. Are you willing to die your life? Are you willing to say, God, your will, not mine? There's a huge difference, isn't it? There's a difference between the saved and the lost. Where I am, there my servants will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And then look what he does. Now my soul has become troubled. He knows death's door is close. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I have come. I'm the wheat. I'm the one that has to die. So that beauty and resurrection and glory comes from that. Verse 28. Father, glorify your name. How are you going to do that? I'm going to die. That's how you're going to be glorified. I'm going to go into that ground and I'm going to be resurrected. That's how it's going to be glorified. And then a voice came out of heaven. All of a sudden, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. You're my glorious son and I'm going to magnify you at the resurrection. And all who will come to me will come through you alone. And then he says, verse 31, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Uh, the cross was, in a sense, the end of Satan's power over death. Jesus took death out of the hands of Satan for all of his elect. He's still causing squirmishes and problems out there. He's still the prince of darkness, and he still leads a band of demons and loves to lead the world into wickedness. But there's an hour coming where he will be cast out. Verse 32. Now notice this, this is amazing. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. That's, that's, that's it. I'm going to draw them through. But he was saying this to indicate what kind of death by which he was going to die. He had to die. In a sense, he's saying, I'm that seed. I am that wheat that falls in the ground. I'm that wheat that must die to show you and bring you to the glory of eternal life. See, that's what Paul's illustrating. And as you wait, make your way back to 
1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 38. The illustrations are just off the hook here. But God gives a body just as he wishes. And to each of the seed, a body of his own. See, the illustration is applied to us and our bodies. Just like the seed receives a unique and a distinguished plant of its own, so the buried bodies of the resurrected will produce a glorious body of their own. Unique to them. Our bodies will be our own bodies. They'll be different, of course, but they'll be us. And I think what Paul is saying here is if you don't believe in the resurrection, it's like one who doesn't believe that redwoods come from a seed. That glorious and magnificent tree. Well, there's no way it came from that seed. Yes, even evolutionists believe that. You reject that. You won't reject that, but you reject Christ. So verse 38 reminds us of the spiritual reality that God himself will raise up to be those who are unique persons, created in the image of God, given an eternal body. Now, I think we can understand transformation a little bit even today. If we think about our bodies, our, our physical bodies are transforming, not for the better right now, but for the worse, Right? Uh, many have said this, and I think it's probably true. Once a baby begins life and takes its first breath, they start the process of death. Death is, is for all men, right? And then judgment. It, it's, it's just the life under the sun. It's life under sin. And I think after 58 years, after my own birth, I don't have the same body. <laughs> it's different. It's a battle every day. It doesn't want to get out of bed. It doesn't want to work out. It doesn't want to eat right. It, it, it doesn't want to be disciplined. You've got to work at those things. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. But, but I am who God created me. I am Scott Manez, created in the image of God. He gave me a personality. He gave me a personhood of what I am. He created me. And when we get to the resurrection, you are who you are. I think that's going to be so beautiful and so unique about the kingdom of God in heaven from the tribes and the languages and the nations around the world. It's all these individuals raised to glory, all whom God created them to be but without sin. That's a family. That's a family without sin. Anybody have family struggles? Uncle Bob? way out there you got all kinds of issues going on you regret going somewhere man we gotta go there it's gonna uh, (laughs) right this is the family of God sinless all in our uniqueness all representing God as image bearers all with our personalities and who we are all there worshiping God that's what we're looking forward to. And that's what Paul's trying to explain to them. They can't get their mind around this. And he's given them analogies that the decaying body is not an obstacle for God who, who can resurrect his own son will resurrect you. And so he's telling us death is simply an immediate doorway to the glory of eternal life. And notice in verse 38, those three little words, but God gives. He gives. It was God who determined the kinds of animals and plants and what kind of seeds they would produce and reproduce back into the ground and then they would produce the plants. It's God who did that. And so Paul's argument is God determined from the form that would come from the dead and decaying sea. He determined that. Why can't he determine what our resurrection bodies would look like? If he can do it for an alfalfa plant... (laughs) What would he do for his image bearers? He's prepared that. Third thought. The glory of each redeemed believer will be on display at the resurrection. The glory of each redeemer, redeemed believer will be on display at the resurrection. Look at 39 through 42. I've got to hurry. But these verses kind of run together here real good. All flesh is not the same flesh. 
For there is one flesh of men, another flesh of the beast, another flesh of the birds, another of the fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heaven is one and the glory of the earth is another. There is one glory of the sun and one glory of the moon and another glory of the stars and the stars differ from stars in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. So after displaying the glory of God through using seed and what it produces there and that this great creator, designer, God does things according to his will, he now turns to the rest of the universe to show glory. It's amazing. But first he starts with flesh. Verse 39. Flesh here, sarks is the Greek word. It is the idea of flesh and blood, of human, animal, um, fish. It's tissue, right? Uh, We understand that. That's the word that's used here. It, it, It tells us that God created individually all these different kinds, kinds of fish. They're still finding new fish. The deeper they go, they they find new things that God created years and years ago, and they had no idea existed, and they're they're marveling at them, though they reject a creator. I was reading just for the joy of Psalms 104. I think I've said this before. The Psalms have probably more about the creation than any other place in the Bible. Certainly, Genesis 1 is the history of it, but the Psalms do such a great... But in the middle of Psalms 104, and I marked this in my Bible, I saw this, verse 24, he said, O Lord, the psalmist, I don't know, we don't know who wrote this, O Lord, how many are your works? Listen to this. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. He made the fish... He made the beast. He made the insects all in their unique designs, every one of them, in their colors and in their doldrums. He did them all different. And each one shows glory. I got thinking about our human bodies because we are such different than, uh, than the animal world. I read that our lungs... Um, deliver oxygen to, through the blood. It traverses through our bodies. And, and I think this is right. I read this. I read it on the internet, of course, so it's got to be right. <laughs> 75 trillion cells. Isn't that amazing? 75 trillion cells our blood is carrying oxygen to. One commentary I read spoke about amino acids and how they appear in the genetic code and he had done a lot of study on this and he lost me quite a bit but he used the term octadilson it's a it's a number that's 10 times 10 plus the 57 to it so it's 57 zeros behind it of the combinations of amino acids that make up our genetic code and genetic codes of all living organisms. And God, the creator, commands that staggering life, staggering amount of life, control of all of it, with all of these different things, animal world, human world, then into the space and all the things that are out there. We'll see just in a moment. He's in command of all of those things. I think when Adam raised up after his little rib surgery, And he looked over at her, and he said, you are bone of my bone. You are flesh of my flesh. You are made like me. Adam knew the difference between a woman. I had to say that. (laughs) And he knew the difference that we are not just all hunks of tissue. We're uniquely designed. So if God uniquely designs us on this fallen world, right? The world went on to fall. They rejected the word of God. The world went on to fall. And God loves these these image bearers and saves millions of them and makes them his children. And he lets us live on this world in fallen conditions. And we suffer disease and we we decay and we, we, we go into the grave eventually. Why wouldn't he resurrect us to a glorious body? See, that's what he does. He's glorious. 
But notice in verse 39, he reminds us that there are, there are all kinds of flesh things. There's beasts and there's birds and there's insects and there's fish. There's endless combinations of these distinct bodies. So Paul takes them in, in the uniqueness of the, from the uniqueness of the seed and the plant to the, to the biological makeup of all flesh. And then notice in verses 40 to 41, he turns his attention to beyond the earth's atmosphere. And this is amazing. He looks at the vast sum of living organization, uh, organisms on our earth, which are staggering. We try to think about all the insects and all those things. And now he moves us to the heavenly bodies. And, and we see the uniqueness of the creator in things that are beyond our comprehension. So we know the Bible says that God names the stars. But when you start to look at this verse, notice at the end of verse 41, for the stars differ from stars in glory. Well, no wonder he names them. He, he, he names them, he knows them all uniquely different. And it wasn't until the Hubble Space Telescope and just the matters of decades are, are we confirming these truths. There's countless billions and trillions of heavenly bodies out there, whether it be stars or planets. And scientists, even worldly pagan scientists, confirm that stars and planets are uniquely shaped. They're uniquely different from one another. In fact, they said they have colors that range the gamut, and none of them are the same. In verse 40, just look at that. That reminds us that the heavens display a unique glory, just as the earth displays a unique glory. See, David knew this. He said, from night unto night, they pour forth your speech. The heavens are declaring the glory of the, of the Lord no matter where you go. He says, the line, the, the sight of all of that goes around the world, and you can be in the Philippines, Japan, Spain, wherever, and you can look at the skies and go, wow. And David, without the Hubble telescope, knew that God was magnificent and glorious, and yet in chapter 8 of Psalms, he says, and yet you're mindful of me. What a beautiful thing. And so, verse 41, I think here when I read this, it captures our imaginations. And we ponder over the glory of the sun. This morning I watched the sun come up out of the ocean. Didn't come out of the ocean, but it does from my view. You can't look at it. It's so brilliant. If you stare at the sun, you're going to have permanent damage to your eyes. And yet Paul said that a bright light like the sun, Matthew 17, Mount of Transfiguration, like the sun, the glory of Christ. This is, they have its own unique glory. They're unique. They're awe-inspiring. They're creator-glorifying. When you look at these heavenly bodies, they have their own glory. And this all points to the glory of the creator and what Paul is doing through inspiration of the spirit. He's saying, look at this massive and incomprehensible creative power of God both in the earth and in the heavens. And look how he displays it in animal life and plant life and terrestrial life. And each has its own glory to each other. But then he says, look at the beginning of verse 42. And this is such a key after he's showing you the glories of God both on earth and in the heavens. He says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. I looked at the sun this morning coming out. I couldn't look at it very long. The higher it gets, the brighter it gets. So you go, oh my goodness. Every time I look at that thing, I should think about God resurrecting me and giving me a glorious eternal body. There's no wonder we don't need sun and moon in the heavens. Not only because we have the Lord Jesus Christ who fulfills all of that glory, but we will radiate the glory of the Savior. See, the uniqueness of glory of every believer will be not lost at death. In fact, you will gain a glory that you've never had before at the resurrection. Oh, don't fear death. Welcome it. Welcome it. That body decaying, that body dying, the, the things we're struggling with, it's a gateway. It's a gateway to the glorious God and Savior and a glorious resurrection. I, I just want to give you one more thought here. I, this morning, I, as I got up and was looking at that, I just, my mind just thought about 2 Peter chapter, two, chapter 3, verses 10. It says that the heavens and the earth will fade away. So Paul gives us this illustration 
of most glorious things. This morning I watched the sun rise. I thought about the glory of God. I thought about the glory of the sun. I thought about the glory of a resurrected body he'll give me someday. And then I thought, well, son, you're going away in all this universe. But I'll remain with my Savior. That's staggering, isn't it? Last thought here, and i got to really put the pedal down here. Number four, run the race well, believer. The best is yet to come. I love Matthew 17 there on the Mount of Transfiguration. I think we learn a lot about the eternal state when you study that. Jesus Christ is transfigured before the disciples there, and it's just a blaze of glory. It's only equal to the Father on Mount Sinai and in the Holy of Holies. There's, that's the, that's the, what it's equal to, what happens to Peter, James, and John there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And we learn so much there. We, we, we learn that, that that's what Jesus looks like. And then John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, says when we see him, we'll be like him. So there we get this glimpse of the glory that a believer will be dressed in as he reflects his God and Savior. That, that scene tells you a little bit what it's going to be like. And those men hit the deck when that all happens. And then you have two men who appear, Moses and Elijah. They're recognizable. They're unique. I like that. Samir, you're going to be Samir in heaven, right? You're going to be you in heaven. And so it teaches us those things. And, and so just like the plant and the animal life of earth and the terrestrial bodies of heaven all displaying a unique glory, so will the resurrected believer display a new resurrected glory, the uniqueness of individuality, all pointing to the glory of Christ. Now, look with me at 42 through 44 here. I read this quick because we got to go. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in perishable body and raised in imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor and raised in glory. It is sown in weakness and raised in power. It is sown in a natural body and raised in spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. I think many godly people have said this, so I just steal this from what's been said already. Um, godly people who look at cemeteries where Christians are buried, they say that's the garden of God. Because out of that, we put Uncle Bob in, the, in there. He didn't look really good when we put him down in there. But what's coming out of there is amazing. Yeah, when people die, they're half the size. I just, <laughs> I just had, um, we went to lunch and spent some time with my mom and dad on the way back from Japan and and my dad's growing old, and he even told me, he said, son, I think I'm dying. And, and I said, <laughs> I don't know if you're supposed to say this, but I said, yeah, I know, dad. We all are. And for a few minutes, him and I just talked about death and what it leads to. And my dad is half the man now. He's little and struggles to walk. And my children have seen it and called me and said, man, grandpa's not looking good. I said, I know, his life is coming to an end. But that's a gateway. From that little shriveled up body and someday I'm going to have to leave and go out and do my dad's funeral and be out there. Someday it's going to happen if the Lord tarries. And we're going to put that little body down in the grave. But out of it is going to come something glorious. And I want you to think about that. And it helps you not fear death and it helps you age for the glory of Christ because that seed that does not look like what it becomes is what we are. There's something so much greater. And so like the seed that must die and decay in order to bring forth fruit, and look at this in these verses, and beauty, so the believer dies in a perishable body, but raised in an imperishable body, dies in a worn out, dishonored body, and raised in a glorified body, dies in a body of weakness, but is raised in a body of power. You can see that in the text. Dies as a natural born body in sin, but is raised in a sinless spiritual body. This is what he's telling us. If you don't understand this, go to your local rest home. Come with us as elders where regularly we go call on our shut-ins and spend time with men like Sam who are great principals and teachers, men of great wisdom, and see them in their final days. They're not who they used to be, and we understand that. We love them just the same. Things are changing in them. Visit someone who used to be extremely wise and see that they have converted almost back to where they began. This is where life goes. 
But in it, we see the deadliness of sin. It's a reminder. This is where sin takes. The wages of sin is death. But then we have a great Savior. You know, a long time ago, we got rid of open caskets. Because us Americans just can't handle that. And even when you do, they put lots of makeup on them, and they try to put them in their best suits, and they do all that stuff. I don't know if you ever done it. I've preached a lot of sermons, and there's, you know, Aunt Jane right there, you know, and you're trying to preach. And, um, but I, I'm, I'm becoming more of a fan. I know that's weird. You may not get there yet, but I'm there. Because I look at that body, and I go, God is going to do something miraculous with that thing. And we can paint it up here and make it look good and then put a cover on it and throw it down in the dirt and never look at it again. But what comes out of there is this glorious body. Have faith. Have hope. Your God is not going to let you come out of in the second life in a decayed body. He's going to give you a body like his son, full of glory, sown in this life, like ski, uh, seeds scattered, but raised, like one raised from a sleep and given new birth and, and given life. And we'll see that next week. Peter speaks of the great inheritance that is coming, an inheritance which is imperishable. And we always think, well, maybe that's streets of gold and, and all of that. No, 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 no. Part of that is that new body. It's imperishable. That's what Paul's saying. Peter picked up on that. Uh, Paul says in Philippians 3 that we'll have a body that will be transformed from our humble state into conformity with his body. Look at verse 45. So also it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, and the last Adam became a living spirit. Adam was a living soul. He was earthly, right? He wasn't spiritual first. He wasn't resurrected and glorified first. He was first earthly There's a great difference here. The second man was from heaven. He's the incarnate, the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only the second man can give the natural man spiritual life. Only the second man can take the fallen and make perfect. Only the second man can make the perishable imperishable. And only the second man can take the weak and make it powerful. That's what he does. In other words, he's outfitting us for for heaven, I don't have time, but 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is such a beautiful text where this earthen vessels were deteriorating, but have hope. God has a glorious, glorious finish for us. So Christians, as you grow, even in this natural body here, you should long for what God has for you. And that means you handle your body differently. This is a stewardship. We're careful with it. And we know that we should not invest everything we have in this body. Paul told Timothy, physical exercises has some profit. But godliness is incomparable in profit. It reminds Timothy of that. And so, yes, good, get, work out, make sure your heart's a little stronger. I've done that this last couple of years, needed to do those things. But boy, spend time in the Word, spend time with Christ, share Jesus with others, have compassion for the lost, love missions. And die and be raised glorious. That's what he's after. Let me just give you the summation of these last few verses because they really sum up verse 46 and through 49 and I'll quit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. The first man is from earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so also are those who are earthly. And as is the heavenly, so also are those of the heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Oh, brothers and sisters, you don't want this earthly body. We want the heavenly one. And someday we'll have what the Lord has. I love, just in closing, Acts chapter 11, Jesus is leaving they're there standing and looking up in the sky where he left, and two angels show up. And they say, why are you looking up there? This Jesus, the God-man, who was taken up from you, will come just in the same way as you've watched him go. You want to know what your body looks like in heaven after the resurrection? Look at Jesus. Look at everything he did after the resurrection. Look at him. See him. See what he is. See the marks on his hands. See his, him who he is. See everything about him. That's us. Because when you see him, you will be like him. Father in heaven, we thank you for this. We are incredibly encouraged that you love us beyond this life. 
You love us so much that you sent your son and he died for us. And he was the seed put in the ground that died, but brought forth a fruitful and glorious, victorious finish. And because of that, we too live. We live. And we live now, Lord, but we have a life that's coming, an eternal life that we will be glorified. And what it looks like now as we finish out this life is nothing compared to what it's going to look like in the future. And Lord, we can kind of go away and say, oh, that's great. I feel better about myself. Or we can go away and say, I can't wait to share the gospel with somebody else. I want them to know a Savior who can transform their life here on this earth and transform it for eternity, bodily. So, Lord, let us not just keep this in and hide this under a bushel, but let us share this. This is great, amazing truth, Lord. Hear our song to you as we worship and close out the service. In Jesus' name.